This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Nehemiah 6. So in the past two, before we read the text, let me just say in the past two chapters, what we've seen is that uh, as they are building the wall, Nehemiah is uh, leading the people to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that they will fortify the city. They'll have protection uh, in the city. They're under Persian rule, and, uh, but they've been allowed to rebuild their wall. And so as they're doing this, we've just found that Nehemiah has faced opposition. Uh, in chapter 4, the opposition is uh, from enemies who are mocking them, jeering them, verbally assaulting them, uh, and then threatening physical assault. So we read that while they're working on this project, leaders, governors, leading uh, voices from the surrounding nations are threatening them. And so at one point, they have to have guards while they build the wall. At another point, they have to have a, a weapon in one hand and a tool in another to build the wall. So it's just tremendous opposition to the work God's called them to. In chapter 5, there is this challenge within the, the community uh, in Jerusalem here. Because what we find out is that the rich, the, the nobles, are taking advantage of the poor. There's been a famine, and so to get food, the poor are are mortgaging their farms, um, their houses, and when they can't pay up their debts, uh, the wealthier ones are foreclosing, taking their fields, taking their vineyards, uh, and even taking some of their children into slavery to serve them to pay off their parents' debts. So it's a grievous situation. Nehemiah says, this is wrong. Uh, calls everybody to repent. They do. They give every the rich give the stuff back. And they say, you don't owe us anything. And um, then Nehemiah just talks about how he has sought to live generously uh, and provides this wonderful model. But there's been this difficulty in the task, both from the outside and the inside. And so when we get to chapter 6, the wall's finished this chapter. We still have a uh, number of chapters to go. But the wall is finished today. Uh, We're going to find out that even on the brink of finishing the wall, there is still resistance. And as we read this, if you've been here for the series and tracking, you'll see it's the the usual suspects uh, are at it again. So let's read. We're going to cover all of chapter 6, but for right now, I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and then towards the end of the sermon, we'll look at the last uh, five verses. So let's, uh, let's read. Let's listen. Let's be attentive to God's holy word. Uh, as he speaks to us here from Nehemiah 6. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this same way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. 
And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we confess that we are dependent upon you. We, we posture ourselves as those who need to hear from you through your scripture, who need to be addressed, who need to be strengthened, who need to be encouraged. We, we pray Nehemiah's prayers, oh, prayer in this passage, O oh God, strengthen our hands. We pray that through your word today, you would equip us and strengthen us for what you have called each of us to do in all of our lives. So Lord, come by your spirit and help us today. Grant us faith and courage um, in what you have done for us, especially in the power of the cross and resurrection. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've gone through this book, there seems to be a sort of a theme that's really come clear in the last few chapters, and, and it's this, that if you give yourself to God's purposes, that if you seek to obey him and follow his calling on your life, you will face resistance. Uh, that, that's what's happened from the very beginning. Nehemiah has faced trouble. That it is true from Scripture that when we seek to follow Christ, we will find trouble or trouble will find us. Uh, the Scripture tells us this in the New Testament as well. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, which is difficulty. Acts 14 says, it is through great trial and difficulty that we enter the kingdom of God, that it, is, uh, that it is a life of challenge as we seek to face God, that opposition will raise its head. And in now, in this section of the story, when Nehemiah has essentially finished the project, this is, we're down to the home stretch. And we find as he is coming to the home stretch that his same enemies, his same enemies empowered by the enemy, are raising their heads and raising their voices again. And they are making a last-ditch effort. And this is their weapon. Their weapon is fear. And today I want to talk about when fear comes knocking. Because fear comes knocking to Nehemiah. Every one of us who attempt to serve God will be tempted by fear. 
And it may not be the same fear that, uh, that, that came upon the people of God in chapter 4. It may not be the fear of physical violence. Uh, most of us in the room aren't living under a threat. Some may be, but most are not living under the threat of physical violence. You don't fear uh, someone taking your life. Um, But there are many other kinds of fears, and numbers of these surface in this chapter, and they are very real temptations for all of us. For instance, maybe not the fear of physical harm, but the fear of what are other people saying? What do other people think of me, of us? We may experience the fear of failing. How many of us limit what we set out to do for fear that if we tried that, we would fail. And it limits us. It stops us from progressing. Fear of letting people down. Let's come against Nehemiah repeatedly that what if he failed? What That's happening in this chapter. Would he be letting God down? Would he be letting people down? The fear of being replaced. The fear of being dismissed. The fear of not being liked. Those are very real fears that surface in this chapter. And there's so many more other fears that all of us encounter in our lives. The the fear of aging, the fear of dying, fear of suffering of all kinds, the fear of investing your efforts in something that won't last or won't matter. The fear of uncertainty, all of our lives are uncertain, and that oftentimes tempts us to fear what could happen. Some of us are inclined to to go down the road of worst-case scenarios and sort of imagine a future that is uncertain now, but imagine it in the worst way. If you're married, you, you may fear about your spouse, fear for your marriage, fear for will you make it. If you're a parent, you will know at some point, and maybe repeatedly, and maybe daily, fear for your children, for their health, for their soul. You may fear your parents. You may fear your boss. You may fear betrayal. That's very common. That's very common in the church. People have an experience where they, have a, they are rejected in some way in a church or treated in an ungodly manner. And, and they fear commitment relationally because they fear that, once again, they'll be betrayed. That may be where you are today. Fear of financial problems, fear of health problems. The list goes on and on. We all know these temptations. And what we learn in this chapter is that fear, uh, it, fear is intended oftentimes to distract us from God's purpose in our life. Fear has the power of paralyzing us. At times, fear has the power of causing us to give up. And that's exactly what Nehemiah's enemies are hoping here. That's exactly why they're wielding this weapon of fear is because they're hoping that Nehemiah will simply walk away and give up, even though it is the 11th hour of the project. Uh, There's three 
we could call them fear attacks in this passage. And I'm going to look at each of them. The first attack is not as evident. It's not as evidently a, a fear issue, I think, as the other two. The, attack number two and attack number three explicitly uh, use the word fear. Nehemiah says, they're trying to make me afraid. We don't get that language in the first one, but I think the same thing is happening. I think the entire chapter has a single sort of running theme. The first fear uh, it surfaces very subtly, very innocently. It, it appears just as an Evite. It's a simple invitation from Sanballat and Geshem that are sent, uh, sent to Nehemiah, verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. It's the same characters, and now they are inviting him out to this neutral locale, the plain of Ono, to just, just have a meeting. That's all it is. I'm not one of those preachers that's good with like little memorable phrases, plays on words, but if I was, (laughs) maybe someday, if I was, I think... I would say about this passage, when the enemy invites you to Ono, you tell your enemy, oh, no. And uh, so we'll have printed t-shirts out. And thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. So you like that kind of preaching. Well, we'll work it next week. We'll have, uh, I'll have you tap your shoulder and tell your neighbor this and have lots of quips and have lots of, well, it'll be great. So come back next week. I'm, I'm working on it right now. Uh, So, oh no, now what's going on here? In in his commentary uh, on Nehemiah, J.I. Packer says that what's happening here, and this is helpful, he says this is essentially uh, the same thing as a politician's concession speech. They know they've lost at this point. The entire wall is built. We're just waiting on the doors to be hung. And so what they're saying, in essence, to Nehemiah is, hey, look, Nehemiah, we're the governors of the regions around, and, you know, we've given you a hard time. It was a rough campaign. There were threats. There were all that kind of stuff happening. But you know what? Okay, you've won. You've built your wall. Congratulations. And now, as your fellow governors in the area, why don't we get together at a neutral locale, and why don't we just kind of have a summit? Let's just sit down and uh, come together and, you know, work on being good neighbors, we, we want to govern the region together. Uh, and there is a subtle pressure that comes with this kind of political invitation. I mean, what if Nehemiah is not willing to go and meet his neighbors? What if he's not willing to forgive and uh, pass grievances and say, let's come together? I mean, we live in this area of the Persian Empire together. We're next door neighbors. Shouldn't we build some bridges Shouldn't we foster some unity? Shouldn't we work diligently at peace? Can't we just forget the past and sort of meet, just a meeting? And under normal circumstances, the answer to that is yes. Believers in God called to represent God to the world should be taking the initiative to build sort of peace bridges, not even waiting for the invitation. But under this circumstance, no. Because what he says is, verse 2, they intended to do me harm. 
He knows they are up to something. This isn't a meeting. This isn't a gathering to get together. This isn't the governors of the area kind of coming together. This is a trap of some sort. Maybe they were going to kidnap him. I don't know. He doesn't say. Maybe they were going to kill him. We don't know. But he says that there was a plot to harm him. And so his answer is uh, found in... uh, Verse 3, I sent messengers to them, say, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I can't come meet with you because I am in the middle of a great work. I am doing what God has called me to do. This would take three days of my time. It's about a day's journey to Ono. It is probably a day of meetings. And if you live through the day, a day back. So I can't take three days to come and meet with you. And I think what's telling is in the chapter before we find out about Nehemiah in chapter five, he says that he lives his life based on the fear of God. He said he has chosen a generous lifestyle. He's been generous with others because he fears God. And we learned something about Nehemiah there that he lives his life in awe of God, aware of God. And that's the driving factor of his life. We talk, we've been talking about the fear of God, uh, for a few weeks and, and the fear of God, uh, is a, can, can be described in a lot of ways, but one way to describe the fear of God is to think it is prime. It is living in a way that I'm primarily concerned with what God thinks. What does God's word say? What is God's perspective? God is, what does God want me to do? There are a thousand opinions out there, but let's silence them all and say, how can I live in a way that will honor what God wants of me? So that's what Nehemiah does. He says, I've got a great work. God assigned him to this work. God opened the door for this work. God provided for this work. And he's not going to be distracted from God's purposes so that he can go meet with his enemies. He's not going to try to appease them by saying, okay, I'll come. I guess it's the best thing to do. It'll look good. He's not trying to appease them. He's not trying to keep them happy. He has a great work from God, he says, and he must stay on course. The summit is a distraction. The summit is a danger, and he's going to keep doing what God told him to do. And this is a great leadership model. All of us lead, or most of us lead in some context. If you have a family, you lead there, or maybe you lead in the marketplace, or maybe you lead a group here at church in some way, or maybe you uh, coach soccer and you lead, uh, you know, you lead uh, the kids and and try to lead their parents. Uh, So, you know, maybe you lead in some kind of a context. And this is a great lesson because what we learn from here is that he is motivated. Ultimately, God's given me a work. What does God want me to do? I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And he's doggedly determined to give himself to that. There's a laser focus for him. And he doesn't care what they think. Cares what God thinks. His fear of the Lord frees him from the fear of man. He's so motivated by what the Lord wants him to do that he's able to say no to others in order to say yes to God. There's a freedom. The replacement, fear of man, meaning being a people pleaser or living for the approval of others, being an approval junkie. Bible calls it the fear of man. It is, it is seeking to win, prioritizing being liked by others. This kind of living where, where the will of others and my, uh, my desire to be approved and respected and loved and celebrated by them directs my actions. That's called the fear of man. And the answer to the fear of man is always the fear of God. It's saying what God thinks is what's most important. 
He has a great work, and he's sticking to it. You have a great work. What is your great work? What is the great work that God has called you to that you would say, I can't get down off the wall because I'm doing the great work? What is that for you? Well, I don't know all the details of your life, so I don't know what that would be, but I, can, I know some of the great works. There's plural great works that we're called to because I know what you're called to. I know what I'm called to. For instance, if you happen to be married, then your marriage is a great work, and that's what God thinks. God doesn't think it's secondary, doesn't think it's on the side, doesn't say. God says it's significant, and God's view of it is high and, and lofty. And God wants to help you. God wants to shower grace upon you in your marriage as you look to him for help. So what are the things in your life that are cheating your marriage, that are cheating attention away from it, that are a distraction that you need to say, I'm doing a great work. I can't go do that. I can't go pay attention. I can't invest the time and the money. I can't go do that. I'm doing this. I'm investing in this relationship. Or if you're a parent, that's a great work. It's a fleeting work. It's a work that is changing as your kids grow. Um, and you'll always be a parent, but, but your relationship to your kids will change over time as they become adults. So what is God saying to you there? What, what are the kind of things that can be a distraction where you need to say, this is what I'm giving myself to. What does God think? I need to invest in my kids. Or if you, what do you do during the week? What is your work? It could be at home uh, or it could be in the marketplace, but what is it that you do during the week? That's a great work. And you say, well, no, you don't know what I do. I'm just kind of what I'm doing is not what I'm ultimately going to do. I, I'm, I'm hoping to get a better job, so this isn't really a great work. It's kind of, no, if it's what you're doing tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. that God's called you to do, it's a great work. And I don't care if you're bussing tables or doing brain surgery. If it's what the Lord has for you tomorrow at 8 a.m., it is a great work because he gave it to you. He called you to it, and it is your act of worship to him. It's your act of serving him through the very work that you do. So what is it at work that distracts you, calls you away so that you could get involved in something else and not be as faithful to the Lord in your work? What does God think about your job? Well, he thinks it's important. What about being a neighbor? We could run down all of the callings of our lives. What about being a neighbor? That's a great work being connected to those where you live. And your neighbor might not just be the person in the apartment or the house next door. It might be the person in the cubicle next door. It might be the person that you serve alongside in the PTA. It might be the, uh, it could be any number of things where you're the, the people that you're associated with, your relationships. Being a faithful neighbor, a loving friend, that is a great calling. And so sometimes the challenge is how to balance all of these, obviously. But there's a, there's a place where we need to look at what the Lord is. We need to be clear on what God has called me to do. I need to look at my life and say, God, what does it mean for me to be a godly husband? What do you think? What are you calling me to do? What does it mean at this stage of life for me to be a godly father? What does it mean to me to be a faithful worker in the work you've given me to do? What does it mean to be a faithful neighbor so that I know what does God think, not what does everybody else's want my time? What do they think I should do? What's the opinion of everybody else? What's the culture doing? What did some article say over here? No, what does God think? Because when you're clear on what God wants you to do, it's so much easier to say no to that and yes to God and not face the temptations that come. What do they think? The fear of man and any other, many other kinds of fear. Here's the second attack. The second attack 
Sanballat, verse 5, sends an open letter. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time. So they came four times inviting him to the meeting. The fifth time he sends his servant with an open letter in his hand. You know, we talk about open, uh, an open letter, which is kind of when I, you know, stick my chest out and just address some person. Actually, I've never written one, but you know what I'm saying? Address some person or address some group, uh, you know, and, it, and, and it's public. So, you know, I might do, hey, open letter. I'm writing an open letter to Philadelphia Eagles fans. Have a good morning because you will be crying tonight. Something like that. That'd be an open letter where I'm addressing an entire class of people and I want it to be publicly recorded on a podcast. Uh, or, you know what I'm saying, writing, writing a letter, something like that. That's, a pub, that's an open letter. Well, this is a letter that's not sealed. And the idea is the servant shows up with an unsealed letter, meaning this letter has been read by other people. The the letter is to you, Nehemiah, but guess what? The envelope's kind of crumpled up. There's a coffee stain. The letter's kind of wrinkled. This letter's been around. Lots of people's eyes have been on this letter before yours. So it's it's gone viral, even though it's paper. It's gone viral. That's the open letter, unsealed, open communication. And guess what the letter says? The letter says, verse 6, it is reported. That's dangerous right there. It is reported among the nations, the whole world, Nehemiah. This is what the whole, like the nations is really big. This is what the whole world is talking about, Nehemiah. It's reported among the nations. And Geshem also says, Geshem, even Geshem is talking about this. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the whole nations, including Geshem, a subset of all the nations. This is troubling. What are they all saying, Sanballat? Please tell us. Well, they're all saying that the Jews intend to rebel. You're rebellious, Nehemiah. You're assaulting the king that you intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, no names but Geshem, which is not a new name. Geshem's been against him the whole book. So it's all vague. According to these reports that I'm hearing, okay, you wish to become their king. And here's the report. You've set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. So you've got prophets, you've manipulated prophets to say, God made me king. That's what you're up to. That's what everybody is talking about. I just want you to know that we're sending you a letter. It looks like this letter has been read by a lot of people, by the way. And that's what is going on, Nehemiah. This isn't subtle pressure. This is direct pressure. Here's the big concern with this. And now the king will hear of these reports. Nehemiah, if Artaxerxes doesn't already know about this, he probably does. But if he doesn't, he's going to find out what everybody's saying, that you are rebelling against the king. That means most likely death. So now come let us take counsel together. You didn't want to come to the previous four, but why don't we get together now and we can sort of squelch the rumors. We can vouch for you. If we can hear from you and see you, and maybe you can convince us that you're not rebelling, then we will, we'll protect you with the king. The king's going to hear about this, but why don't you come and let's, let's talk this through. Let's, let's work this out. What do you say, Nehemiah? 
This is a significant attack because this slanderous campaign through the open letter that has the watch bloggers all over it, driving traffic to their sites with the rumors of rebellion in Jerusalem, with rumors flying, what will happen if Nehemiah doesn't go? He really could be in trouble with the king. He wouldn't be the first person to be fired because of rumor or executed because of rumor. So this really is a threat. It's, it's a brilliantly deceptive strategy a slander campaign by Sanballat, real or imagined. I mean, we don't know if all the nations are saying this or if it's just the letter made to look like it. We don't know, but it is a risk. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, the first thing he does, verse 8, is he denies the rumors. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them all out of your own mind. You are making this up. This is nonsense. I'm not doing anything like that. You're lying. And then he prays, verse 9. He says, their hands, uh, it says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. So it affects him. It's a lie. It's a rumor. It's not true. But God, help me. Help me. I'm not saying he gave in and panicked to fear or anything like that. But I am saying that it affected him. It affected him. And that was the whole purpose, verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Why are they conspiring? Why are they doing this? So that Nehemiah will be frightened. All the people will be frightened. Did you hear? Everyone is saying we're all in rebellion against the king. And they will say, "Woo, let's stop. Let's do not finish the project. That they are They're insinuating the king will hear of this. They are dropping these little thoughts in their mind so that Nehemiah will look down the future and believe the worst. I read one author said this, that fear prophesies a false future. Fear will always tell you a false future. And that's exactly what's happening here. We don't know what would happen if the king hears. God turned the king's heart. So that he funded the building of the wall. The king might hear it and go, that's nonsense. I can see through the rumors. Nehemiah is a faithful man, served me for years, risked his life for me. I have profound trust in him. Get out of here. That could happen. Maybe the king doesn't hear it. Maybe there's not even any rumors. Maybe the king hears it and actually executes him. But here's where fear comes in. It prophesies a false future. It tells us things will happen that normally don't happen. But even if they do happen... Fear never tells you that God will be with you in the midst of the difficulty. Fear will tell you things that are going to happen that never will. I love the saying by Mark Twain that said something like, in this life I have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. He's he's saying the burden of worry and anxiety has created so much trouble for me, but in reality most of that stuff didn't happen. But even if it does happen, God will be with us. Fear always leaves out the part about if the worst happens or if bad happens, God will be right there. God will be with you. Not only that, but the Bible promises us that when we walk through difficulty, that God uses those difficulties for our good. That it's the very difficulty trials, suffering itself, that God makes us more like Jesus. That God, as we heard in the word this morning, that God meets us in our time of need. Fear never tells you that. Fear says the king's going to find you. 
you're going to be alone. You're going to be isolated. You're going to suffer. You're going to die. It's going to be the worst thing you can imagine. Fear never says God is faithful. God is building a people. Look at the history of what God has done so far. It never tells you that. What if the king found out? Well, God is in control of the king. That's what we say to fear. What if the medical diagnosis is bad? It probably won't be bad. That's the first thing I would say. But if it is bad, if it is bad, God will not drop you. If you get the diagnosis you were hoping not to hear, it will not be as if God says, oh, sorry, bro, I had you up until this point, but that one's just beyond me. I'm tapping out on this. It's like God's going to say, oh, God is going to be there with you. He will ne- Jesus says he will never leave you, never forsake you. Fear won't remind you of that. Fear will tell you it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. Uh, what if you lose your job? Statistically, I would say you probably won't. Every time you think you're going to lose your job, you probably won't. But you might. And if you lose your job, it's not going to be like God's going to step back and go, oh, that, that was the only job. I have looked on all the job sites. That's the only job I've got. I'm so sorry you lost that job. Oh, man. Well, I'm up in here in heaven, so go ahead and starve and come see me. and It'll be great up here, you know. It's not like God's going to be like, that's the only job I got. Fear will never tell you that God gave you that job. God could give you any job. God can turn the heart of the decision maker who looks at your resume. God will never tell you. I mean, fear will never tell you there's a better job. Fear will never tell you that. It will be, you will lose your job. You will be homeless. You will suffer. That's what fear will tell you. And you will live with that. What's going to happen? Running it over in your mind over and over. And every time you do, it just gets worse and it gets worse. And now I'm not homeless and people are walking by and kicking me and throwing mud on me. Oh, it gets so bad. And you don't even lose your job. That's how fear works. That's how fear works. Can God provide another job? This This is what Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount. He just reminds us how silly some of this stuff is, but I do it. But how ridiculous it is. He says, um, you know, you're worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. This is a paraphrase, Matthew 6. He says, uh, look at the birds. They don't plant. They don't harvest. They don't cook their meals. But have you ever seen a skinny bird? Have you ever seen a bird walking by with its wings? Oh, hungry. And you know, you know why? Because your father feeds them. They're just birds, but he's your father. He feeds them. He will be faithful to you. Jesus says, when you wonder what's going to happen tomorrow, look at a bird and think by comparison, God cares for them. He's going to care for me. He's going to care for me. But fear prophesies a false future. It says that God will not care for you. What if they, what if they reject me because of my faith? They might. They might not. They might come to Christ and stand with you in your faith. They might reject you. It's possible. But this is what God says, and fear will never tell you this, that if you are persecuted for Christ's namesake, that you're actually blessed. It looks like a trial, but it comes with a bow on it because it's a gift from God. Fear will never tell you that. 
Fear will say it's going to be terrible. You're going to be isolated. You're going to be on your own. You're going to feel the pains of rejection for your faith. God will leave you. God will say, well, I'm with them. I'm opposed to you as well. That's what fear will tell you. Fear tells you the worst will happen, and then it lies about God, and it's his character, and it will never tell you that God will never leave you or forsake you. It will misrepresent God in every instance, usually by silence, by not whispering the truth of Scripture to you. And that's exactly what happens here. The king will hear of these reports, Nehemiah. The king will hear of these reports. Verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Third attack. The third attack involves a guy named Shemaiah. We don't know who he is, but he's an insider. He's from Judah. Uh, Maybe he's a prophet. Uh, And it says in verse 10 that he went to see Shemaiah. And Shemaiah says this, hey, we got to meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. Whoa, this is urgent. Nehemiah, I got a word from God for you. You're about to be dead. And here's the solution. We got to run into the temple. We got to bolt the doors and stay in the temple for protection. The idea is that even pagans had some respect for a house of God. I mean, there's some fear of God on their part that, man, I don't want to go into some desecrate somebody's temple. Uh, Their God might get me or something. So the idea is this is a sanctuary. This is a safe house, sanctuary, literally a safe house. Let's go into the temple and then you'll be protected. What Nehemiah says about that is he says, well, uh, first of all, verse 11, should a man such as I run away, how am I demonstrating faith in God to the people if I'm just running based on a report? If they kill me, I kill me, but I'm I'm not going to go run and hide in the temple. Secondly, and more importantly, he says, uh, uh, what was a man such as I can go into the temple and live? Verse 13 It says that they did this so that I would be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. This was a temptation to sin. Why? Because Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not allowed to go into the holy area of the temple and be protected in some way. He's not allowed to do that. He would be sinning against God. So he's saying, why would I go sin to control the circumstances and to protect myself? I'm not going to be motivated by fear that I must be able to be in control of this and, and, and save my own life. I'm just going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to sin because if I do, they would taunt me with this. If I go into the temple and, and des- you know, uh, blasphemously say, I'm not a priest, but I'm going to let myself in here and, and go to an area that God forbids... I'm going to I'm going to ruin my reputation with the people. I'm not going to be able to lead the people if they think that. Uh and they're going to taunt me with this. They're going to say, "Hey, you ran in fear and you disobeyed God. How can you guys follow Nehemiah?" It's going to give them it's going to give them fodder for their their taunts against me. This is a false prophecy. This guy was an insider and he was hired Verse 13, the, the, the purpose he was hired, for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. Again, they hired him to make me afraid is what Nehemiah says. And this isn't the only guy. These guys are devious, man. Look at verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah. So this lady prophetess is doing the same thing, Noadiah. And the rest of the prophets who did what? Who wanted to make me afraid. 
He may be getting multiple prophetic words. Hey, this is what God wants you to know. To make him afraid. Make him afraid. This is repeated assault. And what they want to do is they want to get his eyes off God. Get his eyes off the faithfulness of God. Get his eyes fearing what might happen. So he makes foolish choices. So he stops the work. So he gives up. So he seeks to take control of things himself, which never goes well. There is no substitute for trusting God. God will allow circumstances in our life, create them, ordain them so that we trust him. He's never going to bless our failure to trust and and our grasping at control. Of circumstances, even to the point of sinning, as is being suggested here. So fear wants you to get your eyes off God, to forget his character, to forget he's trustworthy. He wants them to forget they're coming to get you. Yes, but God protects me. And I'm not doing anything reckless here. God protects me. That is his place of trust. Nehemiah trusts God. And we see it in his prayer. Verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to the things they did. Hey, God, I can't, I can't fight these guys. I mean, they're lying. They're paying off prophets. They got a rumor campaign. Uh, they got an open letter that's gone viral. Uh, they're tricking me and inviting me to this meeting. I, God, would you just take care of them? I, Lord, I just, I just say, I need your help. I cannot control this. That's what he's saying. I give this to you. This is my place. I'm going to rest in you, Lord. Would you deal with them? I love that. He's not strategizing. i got to have this big plan. God, would you deal with the enemies? That's what he says. Well, three fear attacks. And then the last section is victory. But it is a victory wherein we hear more about further attacks than we do the victory, which is telling. Now, there'll be more about the victory. But this first representation of the accomplishment is Um, shrouded with the continued opposition that Nehemiah receives. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehoahan, uh, I'm sorry, Jehoanan, Jehohanan, uh, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Topiah sent letters to make me afraid. So we get two verses saying, this is unbelievable. The wall was built in 52 days. God provided the the resources. God brought his people together. God's people were unified. God's people resisted opposition without and dealt with trouble within with repentant hearts. God did a miracle. So much so that verse 16 says, our enemies heard of it and all the nations were afraid. They're trying to make me afraid, but all the nations are afraid because they could tell God is with us. How can we handle these people? They are Teflon. They're untouchable. Every scheme we come up with does not stick. And look what God did through them. So you would think right now is this huge. Let's have a whole chapter 
to say all, and we will get more about what God did. But right now, you would think right now we get, here's the announcement. Let's have a whole chapter celebrating what God has done. And what do we get? It's like one of those coaches in a, uh, in a playoff, you know, where you win one game and then you move to the next round, where they say, have you ever heard a coach say this before? They say, you know what? Yeah, it was a great victory, and, and the team, we're just going to celebrate tonight, but we're putting this behind us tomorrow, and we're dealing with the next challenge of facing our next opponents. I always feel like, wow, you only get like two hours to celebrate, and then we got to forget and move on. That's what kind of this feels like. Hey, we're going to celebrate in two verses, but here's what's going on. This Tobiah, who's been a repeated enemy of Nehemiah and the people, he's connected with the nobles. He's connected because they have an oath. They are bound by oath. Commentators say that means there's some kind of business agreement. That that Tobiah has business agreements with the leaders in Jerusalem. And so he's not only joined by business, but his kid married into one of the nobles' families. So there's this family connection. So what are the influential people in Jerusalem doing? We got the wall, all these people opposing Nehemiah. What are they doing? Well, they are, verse 19, speaking of Tobiah's good deeds in my presence. The nobles are going, hey, Nehemiah, your enemy who tried to lie, cheat, steal, kill, who tried to do everything to you, we love that guy. Let me tell you the good things about Tobiah. I'd like to be a leader, just led, built the whole city for everybody. And the leaders are saying, we love your enemies. And they go and report to Tobiah everything Nehemiah says. They're spies. They're they're leaking data. And Tobiah sent letters, verse 19, to make me afraid. The wall is built and dude is still sending letters to scare Nehemiah. It does not stop. That's the point of it. If you think you're ever going to get to the place where the opposition is gone, that's coming, and it's called your death or the return of Jesus, whichever comes first. But until that moment, there will be opposition, and I love how real the Bible is, because even when we should be having a parade with all the celebration for the wall is done, we've got leaders who are still connected and still receiving and still celebrating this scoundrel Tobiah who's opposed to us. It's always there. There's always opposition. Nehemiah and the people, they are not having their best life now. That is in the future. That day will come in the future. But in the present, there will be difficulty. Fear says there will be difficulty and you will be alone in it. The Bible says there will be difficulty and God will be with you. He will comfort. He will strengthen you. You're going to grow through it. You're going to know Jesus better. He's going to work in your life. In all your enemies try to do all the difficulties of life, it's only going to work to your good because God is sovereign and orchestrating your life, holding on to you, carrying you. He's in front of you at the destination you're going to what you think is going to be so terrible. God's already there waiting for you with open arms to walk you through it. That's what truth is. But fear prophesies that false future. So what is the fear that you're facing today? What is the uncertainty? What, what is whispering in your ear? What do they think? What's going to happen with my job, my money? What what about that challenging relationship? What am I going to do? What if they won't reconcile with me? What if we can't work it out? What about my health? What about my children? 
What if I can't find a job? What if I fail out of school? What, what, if, uh, what if I'm left to live my life single for the rest of my life? How will I make it as a widow or widower? What, what, is, what, what is the challenge you face? Well, though they're very, very real challenges and very real fears, sometimes that are gripping and overpowering us, the ultimate answer in all of them, the ultimate answer, and it's not simple to get there. It's not a snap of our fingers, but the ultimate answer is a vision of God that surpasses the vision of our trials, a fear of God, considering what God thinks over what do other people think, a confidence in God's faithfulness to be who he is, and a resisting of the lies that tell me things untrue about God and his character and his work, and a remembrance of what God's already done for me. God has met my greatest need, and we can become so familiar with that that we just take it for granted. But God has met our greatest need. No matter what is facing you today, what is facing me, no matter what very, I'm not minimizing, very real temptations and fears that we face, none of them is compared to the fear that many people will face standing before a holy God of the universe and giving an account for their sin without a Savior. That's the most fearful thing imaginable. There's nothing more fearful than the judgment of God against my sin. And yet God has met that need by sending Jesus to die for my sin, to die on the cross, to be raised, to defeat my sin, and so that by faith in him I can have all my sins forgiven, have had all my sins forgiven. So he's met my greatest need, and the promise of Scripture is that if that is true, he will meet our much lesser needs. Let me read you these two verses that have helped me um, in battling Worry and fear in in so many ways, so many times, and I need these verses all, I need these verses regularly. uh, I'm sorry, Romans 8, what shall we say to all these things? Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. If God is for you, there is no one or nothing that is greater than him. You are always in his hand. And then it says this, Paul writes this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying if God killed his own son to die for your sins, if God gave the ultimate sacrifice, if Jesus laid down his life, if the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to that truth and gave you new life, if he did this massive work, which is completely impossible without God's work, then will he not also take care of your health, your job, your kids, your purpose, your, 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 your countless fears that assault you on a daily basis, the opposition that you face on a daily basis, the situations that just feel too hard? Will he That is the truth of Scripture, and that is the truth that fear will never tell you. Fear will prophesy a false future. The true future is, will he not graciously give you whatever you need? He will care for you. That's God's promise to us. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.com dot o-r-g